When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. About 95% of pop songs are about being in love, those early stages when a man loves a woman, that kind of thing. But there's another smaller subset. Again, it's only about 5% of pop and rock songs. And I apologize for any country and Western fans here will not be going into those very deep wells. Um, it's hard to really compare the two. But if you, the 5% of pop and rock songs that are about something other than being in love, they are surprisingly about anger. Mostly because the love didn't go right. But we can go back to Elvis Presley's appropriation from African-American music, Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, now being repopularized in a cover by Doja Cat. And I love that there's a song about a dog sung by a cat. You can also look at Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, and Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made for Walking, Taylor Swift's I Forgot That You Existed, Carly Simon's You're So Vain, Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know, and every song ever recorded by Eminem. (laughs) These songs about anger, I think, resonate with a lot of people because most folks are carrying around some anger, often a deep well, a sort of reservoir which we can call upon at any moment. And many people are not really fully aware that it's there. Now, if you're in the heat of it, you know. Um, And maybe you are angry very presently right now with the person who drove you to church today. Maybe um, it's the person you live with who is not at church with you this morning. Maybe it could be an older and deeper wound, not fresh, but still very raw. Uh, Many people have something where they were hurt a long time ago, and it was simply never really addressed or resolved. Uh, Many people, that's in their family, but you'd be amazed the number of people who had their path thwarted in life. There was some school you wanted to go to, some program you applied for, or some promotion you hoped to get, and you didn't get it. The path was blocked, and there's immense anger and a sense of injustice that can be there. And the reason I say all this is because we are not good at talking about our anger. We are good at repressing it. We're not good at talking about it. And the reason I know that we're good at repressing it is because it just comes out all over the place in ways that are not productive and that are really destructive to society. You have only to turn on your TV and turn on to any channel that purports to be a news channel, and you will see left, right, up, down, middle, center, wherever, outrage. Because we are not dealing with what's... And that's not to say there aren't things rightly to be angry or upset or to care about. But it seems to me that we're not good at dealing with the anger that we're dealing with interpersonally and in our families, in our lives, and so it just comes out everywhere else. And the way you know that this is happening is when somebody is angry at them. Those people. They always da-da-da-da-da-da-da. They never da-da-da-da-da-da. 
If only everybody agreed with me and the world would be a much better place. How convenient that I'm right about everything. Even things I don't know much about. So, I want to talk about anger. And I don't have to tell you that we are a deeply divided and angry country and world, actually. These problems are not unique to the United States. Uh, George Washington wisely, in his farewell address, warned the American people to beware of factions and political parties. He expressly told them not to do it. The Constitution was written in a way, hopefully, to prevent their existence. And after George said, don't do it, we were like, nice. And then five minutes later, political parties. It's an old story, led to a civil war. We're still kind of living with the consequences, the very real live consequences. Again, this country is only 240 years old. We're just, we're, we're teenagers compared to Europe and the rest of the world. Babies even. We're new at this thing called government and democracy and all that. And it does feel pretty bad right now. Uh, the events of the past week, the events of the January 6th hearing, the events of the shootings, the events of everything. There's not a single thing that's not politicized. Oh, goody, politics. Aren't you glad? I am uh, deeply nervous. I got through most of my anxiety in the 730 service, and now I'm just, the Holy Spirit has taken over. Please, Lord, help. I have this rule that I don't talk about politics from the pulpit, and I am not going to talk about partisan views. I'm not going to advocate a certain policy over another, but I did feel, and this was something that came out of my own prayer life, it came out of conversations with others, and it also comes from just seeing where we've been in this cycle over the past few years of where we are headed. And I do feel, because you are sheep in the flock of Christ, as am I, and we are headed into another maelstrom. In fact, we're in it now. The, 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 the waves are churning and um, people are raging. And this absolutely affects your own life. It affects, I mean, the trauma of COVID and all the things that we've been going through. Um, war, economics, all of this impacts your life, your actual life. And we are headed, this is a preemptive sermon to some extent, because it's beginning to heat up now, but in 12 months, the next presidential campaign is going to reach, reach this kind of white-hot fervor. And one of the blessings and beauties of this church is that there are people on all sides of political spectrums and questions. There are even people who mix and max options. People don't realize you can do that, but you can. You can, like Chris Rock, be conservative about some stuff and progressive about some stuff, you're welcome. But it's going to be brutal. And Thanksgiving will be terrible again. Social media will be just a dumpster fire rolling downhill into a cesspool. And I am not going to try to convince you of a certain viewpoint in terms of the political spectrum because that only gets 50% of you who already agree to be like, oh, he's so wise, and the other to be angry and never come back. And the other thing, by the way, Jesus was offered, at least according to the scriptures, three times he was offered political power. Once by the devil. Interesting. <laughs> Two other times by followers or other fellow people in Israel. And Every single time, without fail, he declined. And that should make us wary about people who seek political power motivated from Christian belief. 
because Jesus himself (laughs) said no thank you. So it's not to say you can't. It's just to say be thoughtful and deeply prayerful about it. I do want to talk about what the gospel does and means for people who are angry and have a hard time listening to people who have a different viewpoint from they, from them. I want to talk about anger, I want to talk about differences, uh, and um, if, if by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit we can look a little bit more like Jesus, even a tiny bit going forward, it will be a miracle, and it's what church is about. And I hope that you, people of St. Albans, that we can be little bits of salt and light in the world, in the, in, in the, around your kitchen table, with your relatives, wherever you're communicating, even a tiny bit, because the way Jesus thinks about this is really different. And I want to look at Luke chapter 9, and I want to see how Jesus responds to people who are sure that they are right and they are outraged. I want to look at how Jesus responds to people who think differently from him. And if we can figure out where this comes from, where this miraculous patience with people that he disagrees with, where this comes from, maybe we can tap into that a little bit for ourselves, at least today. So the story is Luke Gospel chapter 9. Jesus is passing through Samaria. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And these are names that for many people are sort of far away, once upon a time in a land far away. They're sort of abstract to us. So for Jerusalem and Samaria, what I want you to picture are the crowds that are right now at this moment gathered outside of the Supreme Court of the United States with the riot police on hand to break up anything should it become violent. The amount of animus that is between the red and the blue, the pro and the anti, all of that, that level of heat is what separated the Samaritans and the Jews because they were two sides of the same coin and each side thought they were totally right. The Jewish people, the followers of Israel, had a certain understanding of the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, and where worship should take place and how it should take place and how it should be lived out. And the Samaritans were sort of a break-off faction that had mostly the same beliefs but differed in some key aspects. And the people who hate each other the most are the ones that are very similar but differ in a few small things. And Jesus decides to go through a Samaritan area on his way to Jerusalem. And so you can think it's already a little bit tense as they're going through there. And Jesus, again, always happy to poke the bear, sends his disciples ahead into a Samaritan village and says, I would like you to book a room at the Motel 6 of Samaria. And they go forward to do that, probably a little bit nervous about doing so. And they are denied lodging. Even though the sign out front says vacancy, they are told by the clerk at the desk, no vacancy. And so they come back to Jesus and James and John, apparently the leaders of this uh, kind of hospitality uh, mission, say to Jesus, should we call in the cruise missile strike? Should we call down fire from heaven to wipe this place off the face of the earth? Because they have rejected you. And they come to Jesus like it's a good idea. Jesus, I mean, these people rejected you, right? We're on the same page. Get the drones, do the targeting. Let's eliminate them. And Jesus rebukes them. Jesus doesn't do a lot of rebuking. He does a lot of forgiving, a lot of embracing, a lot of loving, a lot of healing. But here he rebukes. 
And they move on down the road where they meet more people who also reject Jesus, maybe not as forcefully, but they do. They want to follow him, but they have some business concerns and they're managing a portfolio and they have some family matters to attend to. And we want to follow you, Jesus, just not right now. And Jesus continues on the road. James and John are angry, outraged, because there are people who don't agree with them. And because they're angry, they think the correct response, the religious response, the holy response, is to wipe out anybody who doesn't agree with them. Jesus seems to think that this is not the correct response. And I think if we look at the passage, we can get a sense of why. The reason why is that if Jesus were to start wiping out people that don't agree with him or who reject him, he would have to wipe out everybody. And this gives Jesus a unique insight into what it means for us to be human, how Jesus sees human beings. And if you look at the three categories of humans other than Jesus in the story, one, Samaritans, outright rejection of Jesus, very clear. We don't want any piece of that. Second category of people, the other folks on the road who actually say they want to follow Jesus, but they're a little distracted. So it ends up being a rejection, but it's a little softer, kind of lukewarm. And then there are James and John, the people who accept Jesus and believe in him, but they clearly don't understand a thing about who he is. And they have a massive blind spot because they think Jesus has come to release judgment upon the world. All of them in their own way actually reject who Jesus is. They, none of them receive who he actually is. And so again, if we're in the business of calling fire down from heaven, being angry and outraged and wiping out anybody who doesn't believe with us, well, then we're all in the same boat. And this is the thing I think Jesus... Um, rightly and wisely, and he says it other places in the scriptures, what Jesus sees about human beings, which we often fail to acknowledge, admit, or see, is that we're all in the same boat on some level. We're all subject to blindness. We're all subject to need. We're all subject to suffering. And a result, we all need what Jesus offers which is why he sees James and John. He sees the Samaritans who reject him. He sees the people on the road who reject him. And in face of all of that, his response is to not call down fire upon any of them, but to simply continue on his task to go to Jerusalem, to die for the whole world, the Jameses and the Johns, the Samaritans and the people on the road. Jesus sees everybody as someone who is in need, Jesus sees everybody as people who need forgiveness. And I cannot make you think one way or another about any certain political issue. I encourage you to have views. I encourage you to talk to others. I encourage you to listen. I encourage you to read. But I implore you, in the spirit of Christ, because of what we see in this passage, to never forget that the people on opposite sides from you are human beings who are broken and who are suffering and who are sinners who need the grace of God as much as you do 
to realize that you have blind spots. You might be wrong, and you don't know everything. And you are not allowed, at least as a Christian, to dehumanize anyone or to use a label to dismiss their humanity. And if you see anybody on TV or if you hear anybody on the radio or you see anyone at a rally and they label other people and use that to dismiss an entire category of human beings for whom Christ died, know that that is not the spirit of Christ. Have your views. Have your conversations. But dismissing people and, and is not Christian. And in a gift of the Holy Spirit, Eugene Lavery, months ago, chose a hymn for today, the third verse of which says, Where generation, class, or race divide us to our shame, Jesus sees not labels, but a face, a person, and a name. We are headed into a time where everybody is going to be labeling other people, dividing them into camps, and talking about who's right or who's wrong. As a Christian, you can have progressive impulses. As a Christian, you can have conservative impulses. You can have a libertarian streak. You can be interested in what the Green Party says. You can be an independent You can be a conscientious objector, a pacifist, or a just war person. But what you can't do is dehumanize others. What you can't do is be 100% that you know everything and are right about every single question. And you can't figuratively or metaphorically call down fire from heaven on people for whom Christ died. If you need any help, and this is where I kind of want to end this and land the plane... I encourage you to do what Christ said, which is to be less concerned about the speck in the eye of other people and be much more interested in the log that is in your own, which is to say, be humble. If you go to a family meeting or to a breakfast with an old friend intending to convince them that they're wrong, you are like James and John, and that's not the spirit of Christ. If you go seeking to listen and aware of the log in your own eye, then you are beginning to arrive at the place to which Christ has called you. There's a list of sins that Paul gives in the reading from the letter to the Galatians this morning. And the human ear, because of church culture or Sigmund Freud or whatever, we tend to hear the naughty ones when that list is read. Ooh, fornication, carousing. I have seen some carousing in my day. Good thing I'm not a carouser. But the ear tends to pass over those sins that are less tabloid worthy. Jealousy, quarrels, factions. Sounds like what I see on TV. Sounds like what I hear Christian people demonstrate all the time, sadly. I don't have a fix for that. But I do invite you to realize that you are somewhere in that list. To realize that you have at some point been a Samaritan 
who refused to receive Jesus. You, at some point, have been like a person on the road who thought receiving him would be a good idea, just not right now. And you've also been someone like James and John, received him, but had no idea who he actually was or what his teachings meant. We're about to do a radical thing, which is to come to this table of the Lord, which doesn't have a side. It is for all, because we are all invited that Jesus is the one who invites all to this table. Because whether we are James or John, whether we are a Samaritan, whether we are a person on the road, we are simply people who seem to be very much into our own ego, our own list of grievances, our own anger. And what we need is to come to the one who sees all, no matter which category, and offers forgiveness and offers grace and invites them to a place of humility where they can trust someone else, namely him, instead of ourselves. This sermon is not going to fix anything, but again, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would be willing to be open to thinking about entertaining the idea of looking at the log in your own eye before you look at the speck in someone else's. And to remember that in the face of all these different kinds of people who rejected Jesus and who got it wrong, Jesus never rejected any of them, but instead went to Jerusalem and went to the cross, that we might all be united around him. May God make it so. Amen.